BestBookBits.com brings you the book summary of Will, the autobiography you've been waiting for, a brave, inspiring, and widely entertaining memoir full of self-help lessons for readers from one of the world's most charismatic and much-loved actors, Will Smith. One of the most dynamic and globally recognized entertainment forces of our time opens up fully about his life in a brave and inspiring book that traces his learning curve to a place where out of success inner happiness, and human connection are aligned. Along the way, Will tells a story in full of one of the most amazing rides through the worlds of music and film that anyone has ever had. Will Smith's transformation from a fearful child in a tense West Philadelphia home to one of the biggest rap stars of his era, and then one of the biggest movie stars in Hollywood history. With a string of box office successes that will likely never be broken in an epic tale of inner transformation and outer triumph. And Will tells it astonishingly well, but it's only half the story. Will Smith thought, with good reason, that he had won at life. Not only with his own success unparalleled, his whole family was at the pinnacle of the entertainment world. Only they didn't see it that way. They felt more like star performers in his circus, a seven days a week job they hadn't signed up for. It turned out, Will Smith's education wasn't nearly over. This memoir is the product of a profound journey of self-knowledge, a reckoning with all that your will can get you and all that it can leave behind. Written with the help of Mark Manson, author of the multi-million copy bestseller, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, Will is the story of how one exceptional man mastered his own emotions, written in a way that can help anyone else do the same. Few of us will know the pressure of performing on the world's biggest stages for the highest of stakes, but we can all understand that the fuel that works for one stage of our journey might have to be changed if we want to make it all the way home. The combination of genuine wisdom of universal value and a life story that is preposterously entertaining, even astonishing, puts Will, the book, like its author, in a category by itself. On with the book summary. Chapter 1, Fear. I've always thought of myself as a coward. Most of my memories of my childhood involve me being afraid in some way. Afraid of others' kids, afraid of being hurt or embarrassed, afraid of being seen as weak, but mostly, I was afraid of my father. The North Philly streets had a way of hardening you. You either crystallized into a mean motherfucker or the hood broke you. But as it turned out, Daddy-O loved it. It was in the military that he discovered the transformative power of order and discipline. Two values that he come to worship as the guard rails protecting him from the worst parts of himself. Like many sons, I worship my father. But also, he terrified me. He was one of the greatest blessings of my life, but also one of the greatest sources of pain. He loved the poetry of his profanity. I once heard him call a man a dirty rat cocksucking low down mangy pig fucker. Mum. Mum doesn't use profanity. In his world, there is no such thing as a small thing. Doing your homework was a mission. Cleaning the bathroom was a mission. Getting groceries from the supermarket was a mission, and scrubbing a floor. It was never just about scrubbing a floor. It was about your ability to follow orders, to exhibit self-discipline, and to complete a task with the utmost 
perfection. The constant fear during my childhood honed my sensitivity to every detail in my environment. From a very young age, I developed a razor-sharp intuition, an ability to attune to every emotion around me. I learned to sense anger, predict joy, and understand sadness on far deeper levels than most other kids. This emotional awareness has stayed with me throughout my life. Paradoxically, it has served me well as an actor and performer. I could easily recognize, comprehend, and emulate complex emotions long before I knew that people would pay me for it. My father tormented me, and he was also one of the greatest men I've ever known. My father was violent, but he also was at every game, play, and recital. He was an alcoholic, but he was sober at every premiere of every one of my movies. He listened to every record, he visited every studio. The same intense perfectionism that terrorized his family put food on the table every night of my life. In a family of fighters, I was the weak one. I was the coward. How we decide to respond to our fears, that is the person we become. How we decide to respond to our fears, that is the person we become. I decided to be funny. That night in the bathroom at only nine years old, watching the destruction of my family as my mother collapsed to the floor, in that moment, I decided. I made a silent promise to my mother, to my family, to myself. One day, I would be in charge, and this would never, ever happen again. Number two, fantasy. Comedy is an extension of intelligence. It's hard to be really funny if you're not really smart. Living in your own little world with your own rules can be an advantage sometimes, but you have to be careful. You can't get too detached from reality because there are consequences. Kids could be cruel, and the more eccentric you are, the less mercy you'll be shown. The bigger the fantasy you live, the more painful the inevitable collision with reality. If you cultivate the fantasy that your marriage will be forever joyful and effortless, then reality is going to pay you back in equal proportions to your delusion. If you live in the fantasy that making money will earn you love, then the universe will slap you awake. In the tune of a thousand angry voices. Chapter 3. Performance Gigi didn't make a distinction between your burdens and her own. She truly believed the message of the gospel. She saw loving and serving others not as a responsibility, but as an honor. These three ideas, discipline, education, and love, would fight for my attention throughout the rest of my life. I was raised to believe that I am inherently equipped to handle any problem that may arise in my life, racism included. Some combination of hard work, education, and God would topple any and all obstacles and enemies. The only variable was the level of my commitment to the fight. Chapter 4. Power The equation was now complete. DJing plus MC equals hip, takeaway hop, and the world was not ready. I never cursed again in my rhymes, and I got criticized and smashed for years for that choice. But there was no peer pressure that even came close to overriding Gigi's pressure. This was always my biggest strength. I have been cracking jokes my entire life. All I had to do was make them rhyme and people were flipping. 
Now, Miss Brown, we both know I am barely 30 seconds late, and if you don't mind henceforth and here on too, do I demand to be known as the Fresh Prince? The classroom burst out laughing. The name stuck. In order to feel confident and secure, you need to have something to feel confident and secure about. Internal power and confidence are born of insight and proficiency. When you understand something or you're good at something, you feel strong and it makes you feel like you have something to offer. When you have adequately cultivated your unique skills and gifts, then you're excited about approaching and interacting with the world. As a teenager, outside of physical injury, you cannot feel worse than having your mother catch you and your girlfriend, doggy style, on the kitchen floor. Chapter 5, Hope. I go on and on, but I'll stop and just say there's a reason why many, including myself, consider Jeff to be the GOAT of hip-hop DJing. Even today, over 30 years later, he's revered by DJing experts of one of the best in the world. Jeff was flawless that night, and when it was all said and done, in 1986, World Supreme DJ was a kid who spent most of his life in a basement in southwest Philly. My DJ, DJ Jazzy Jeff. But the time we drove home the next morning, New York disappearing behind us, I was struck with an overwhelming conviction. I'm not going to college. We didn't realize that Dana didn't even have a company yet. He had no distribution, very few connections in radio and television, and DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince were his first foray into the music business. Deep down inside, I knew that my dreams would be made or broken by people I choose to surround myself with. Confucius had it right. It's nearly impossible for the quality of your life to be higher than the quality of your friends. And by the grace of God, there has never been a single moment in my life when I have looked to my left or to my right and not seen an extraordinary friend, someone who believed in me and was done for whatever. Our hopes had finally collided, and these hopes were inherently incompatible with each other. One had to give way. One of us was going to have our heart broken. My mother's college education saved her life, which solidified for her a fundamental premise. A college education is the only armor against the brutality of this world, and without a college education, I would be condemned to certain destruction. This was not her advice to me. This was the truth. To her, being a rapper was impossible. But I am not my mother. Just as her education saved and defended her from the hardships of her early life, performance in hip-hop had saved me from mine. It's clearer when I look back now, while we were gridlocked and colliding and arguing, the reality was both things were true. One was true for her, and the other was true for me. So here's what we're going to do, Daddy-O said. You've got one year. Your mother said you can get all them schools to hold your acceptance till next September. We're going to help you and support you to do anything you think you need to do to succeed, but in one year. If it ain't happening, you're going to go to whichever one of them schools your mother chose. That work for you. In my mind, a year was forever. I was ecstatic. I ran outside. I wanted to grab somebody to tell them, that's me. Y'all, that's me. But it was 10 o'clock. No one was out. I started giggling, a knee-jerk reaction that I still have to this day when I find myself in extreme emotional circumstances. I couldn't stop laughing. It was joyous, blissful laughter. The pure joy of a child waking up on Christmas morning. The joy of discovery, of renewed hope, of a new life. 
the joy of being right about me. Chapter 6, Ignorance. People often say ignorance is bliss, maybe right up until it's not. We punish ourselves for not knowing. Living is the journey from not knowing to knowing, from not understanding to understanding, from confusion to clarity. By universal design, you are born into a perplexing situation, bewildered, and you have one job as a human. Figure this shit out. Can I help you? Daddy-O said. Where's the motherfucker at? Dana gruffly responded. Well, if that motherfucker you're looking at is Will, he's in the house. You're welcome to come in and kill him now, and the whole family's home too, because if you touch Will, you're going to have to kill us all. But we ain't accepting no fucking threats from you. Chapter 7 Adventure. What I'm saying is objectively and factfully true. The late 1980s was the greatest time in hip-hop history. Period. Full stop. Amen. We never even adjusted from our jet lag. We woke up at 4pm every day, hit the studio by 6pm, worked until about 6am, grabbed some free breakfast at the Swish Cottage Buffet, and went to bed around 7am. We kept that schedule up for almost 6 weeks, and it was bliss. He's the DJ. I'm the Rapper was released on March 29, 1988, anchored by Brand New Funk, and the parents just don't understand. The album would eventually reach number 4 on the Billboard 200, going triple platinum, selling more than 3 million copies. We were red hot and unstoppable. At 20 years old, I was a world famous rapper, a Grammy Award winner, and a freshly minted millionaire, pun intended. I would drop the mic, but I needed it for the next chapter. Chapter 8, Pain. On the outside though, I was strangely calm because none of these thoughts were registering as actual feelings. I wanted to be angry. I mean, you're supposed to be pissed when somebody cheats on you, right? But I felt nothing. When you're a 20-year-old rapper from the inner city of Philadelphia who's just made his first million dollars, the only people who can afford to hang out with you are other rappers, professional athletes, or drug dealers. I picked drug dealers. Boy, why do you need three cars, he said. You've only got one ass. I have since realized the critical importance of environment. Choosing the city you live in is as important as choosing your life partner. The thing about money, sex, and success is that when you don't have them, you can justify your misery. Shit, if I had money, sex, and success, I'd feel great. However misguided that may be, it psychologically permeates as hope. But once you are rich, famous, successful, and you're still insecure and unhappy, the terrifying thought begins to lurk. Maybe the problem is me. Of course, I dismissed that foolishness quickly. I just needed more money, more women, more Grammys. Chapter 9, Destruction. It's unbelievably painful for me as I write this chapter because these conflicts and misunderstandings had such simple solutions, yet our immaturity demanded that we had to suffer excruciating consequences in order to learn the most basic lessons of human relating. It's so obvious to me now how hurtful it must have been for Clayt to go from being my best friend and my creative right hand to someone who was increasingly being excluded and alienated and asked by photographers to step out of pictures, and what's worse, we never even talked about it. Imagine you were to secure a title fight against Mike Tyson in his prime. Fearful for your life, you hire legendary trainer Freddie Roach, you commit to the perfect diet, 
the perfect training regime. You do everything within your power to prepare yourself to face Iron Mike. You step into the ring in impeccable physical and mental condition, and Mike destroys you within 15 seconds. You did everything you could possibly have done, and still lost. You're just not as good as a fighter as Mike Tyson. That is bearable loss. That is what I'm calling natural destruction. But if you were lollygagging during training, didn't eat right, and let your boy Pokey train you, and then Mike knocks you out in 15 seconds, now you have to face an unbearable loss. You have to live the rest of your life not knowing what might have happened had you done your best. In the back of your mind forever, you will know that you didn't only lose to Mike Tyson, you lost to yourself. The fight wasn't you versus Mike, it was you and Mike versus you. That's how I feel about and in this corner. I didn't pay my taxes. It's not like I forgot. It was more like I just didn't pay my taxes. In January 1990, Uncle Sam decided that I've had enough fun and he wanted his. I owed the IRS taxes around $3 million of income. I think somewhere above a million dollars. Uncle Sam shifts from ordinary to irritable and everything north of about 2.3 million makes him aggressive and cantankerous. I was rich and famous, minus the rich, and minus the famous. I was worse than broke. I was in the hole. The walls were tumbling down. I'd enjoyed Sodom and Gomorrah way more than I was enjoying Jericho. As I write this chapter, I have never seen or spoken to Melanie again. I'd reached out on multiple occasions over the years with no response. She was the victim of one of the lowest points in my life. Yes, we were young. Yes, we hurt each other. But she did not deserve how I treated her. She did not deserve how it ended. But as I sat in that jail cell, facing aggravated assault, criminal conspiracy, simple assault, and reckless endangerment charges for a punch I hadn't even thrown, I finally understood a term I'd heard many times before. Rock bottom. When I get my feet, you should roll out to LA. Bucky chuckled the same knowing chuckle. Sure man, I'll do that. He gave me a pound. I made my flight. Three days later, Bucky was dead. Chapter 10, Alchemy. But right now, everybody that needs to say yes to this show is sitting out there in that living room waiting for you. And you're about to make a decision that will affect the rest of your life. No paralysis through analysis. Quincy shouted again and again. He would intone this mantra nearly 50 times over the next two hours. It was the answer to every question. It was a response to every stutter. It was the solution to every legal problem. Until two hours later, when Quincy Jones, Brandon Tartikoff, Benny Medina, and Will Smith entered into an agreement to shoot a pilot for a television show tentatively titled The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Six weeks earlier, I'd been curled up in a ball in a Marina Del Rey, lost, depressed, and terrified. And just like that, the universe had given me a new family. James Avery, Janet Herbert, Winton, Alonso Ribeiro, Tatiana Ali, Karen Parsons, and Joseph Marcel. Chapter 11, Adaption. Just as a piece of Fresh Prince of Ballet trivia, in the opening credits of the show, when I get in one little fight and my mum got scared, the person I get into one little fight with, the guy who is spinning me around and precipitating my departure for California, that's Charlie Mack. For example, the same angry, aggressive persona you cultivated as a child to protect yourself from bullies and predators will now destroy every relationship you have if you're unwilling to let it go. 
Things can be perfectly useful and absolutely necessary during certain periods of our lives. But a time will come where we must put them aside or die. I would later learn a term that resonated deeply with my experience at O'Hare that night. Psychography or automatic writing is a theoretical psychic ability allowing someone to produce written words without consciously writing. Skeptics call it self-delusion. I call it another Grammy and my first number one record. Chapter 12, Desire. The war between desire and obstacle is the heart and soul of dramatic storytelling. Sometimes the obstacles are internal, those are the fun ones. I came up with a way to describe what makes a great movie star character. I call it the three F's of movie stardom. You have to be able to fight, you have to be funny, and you have to be good at sex. Beneath the three F's are our deepest human yearnings. Fighting equates to safety, security, and physical survival. Being funny equates to joy, happiness, and freedom from all negativity. And being good at sex equates to the promise of love. When you know what you want, it clarifies what you don't want. And even painful decisions, though not easy, become simple. Jay, that's a lot of money, dude. Tom Cruise wouldn't take this role. JL said, we turned down eight heads in a duffel bag. Damn, Jay. You are hyped about this one. I'm telling you, this is the one, he said, punching his fist into his hand. Word. How much? Well, this one's different. I get that, Jay, but how much? I said. I took six degrees of separation for $300,000. Will Smith is no more real than Paul. They're both characters that were invented, practiced, and performed, reinforced, and refined by friends, loved ones, and the external world. What you think of as yourself is a fragile construct. Something broke in our marriage because we would never get it back. Cherie would later confine that was most of her feelings had been hurt in her adult life. Cherie and I deteriorated quickly after that. We argued about everything. Nothing was too trivial to fight about. I recalled criticizing how she washed a skillet. Cherie and I would go days without speaking to each other. We even invented a game that we played when people came over called You Know What I Hate About You, and the winner was whoever could make our guest laugh the most. Am I having a fucking nervous breakdown? And slowly my emotional truth came to vivid three-dimensional clarity. I knew with absolute certainty that Jada Pickett was the woman of my dreams, but I had committed my life before God to Cherie, and there was no version of me ever going back on my word. My tears were railing against the harshness of this reality, and my laughter was cursing its absurdity. But soon, my hysteria subsided. I wiped my tears, and I exited the store, fully prepared to spend the rest of my life with Cherie Smith. Chapter 13, Devotion I would have never got married if I thought divorce was an option. The reason you say you're going to do it or die is because death is what happens when you don't do it. Your mind is trying to protect you from the hard things, to defend you from pain. The problem is, all of your dreams are on the other side of pain and difficulty. So a mind that tries to seek pleasure and comfort and the easy way inadvertently poisons its dreams. Your mind becomes a barrier to your dreams, an internal enemy. If it was easy, everyone would do it. My sister Ellen stays in the mix. She always has. Every party, every piece of gossip, every rumor... She's the girl on the block that when something happens, she has the scoop. If she worked for the police department, she would drop crime by 40% in the first week. She knows everything about everyone at all times. 
Chapter 14, Boom. The next 10 years of my professional life were an absolute, unadulterated, unblemished route of entertainment industry. Bad Boys, Independence Day, Many Black, Enemy of the State, Wild Wild West, Ali, Many Black 2, Bad Boys 2, iRobot, Shark Tank, Hitch, The Pursuit of Happiness, I Am Legend, and Hancock, resulting in more than $8 billion in global box office. It was the first time I've ever experienced a woman having a sexual reaction to my madness. Up until this point in my life, I'd used comedy to attract women. And now, I was being objectified. It was wonderful. All I could think was, okay, Michael Bay, you were right. I was wrong. Thank you. From that point forward, directors had to argue with me to keep my shirt on. Imagine the following in the Arnold voice. You were not a movie star if your movies are only successful in America. You were not a movie star until every person in every country on earth knows who you are. You have to travel the globe, shake every hand, kiss every baby. Think of yourself as a politician running for the biggest movie star in the world. So I would shoot the fresh Prince of Bel-Air during the week, leave the set, go straight to the airport, fly to Europe overnight, land Saturday morning, do interviews all day, do a premiere, sign autographs all night, head straight back to the airport, hop back on the jet, memorize my lines for the next fresh Prince of Bel-Air episode on the flight, and land in LA just in time to go to sleep Sunday night. Then I'd wake up Monday morning and do it all over again. Movie stardom also has effects on my relationships. When I was music famous, my family and friends saw it as cool and fun. When I was TV famous, there was a subtle difference growing between us. But Friday nights at the Fresh Prince felt so family orientated that we would reconnect and feel as bonded as we've always had. But when I became movie famous, something fundamental changed. Some friends and family I had known my whole life shifted into one of two camps, either so respectful and differential that it felt like we were strangers. I couldn't find my loved ones within their new behavior. Or in the second camp, they become disrespectful to try to show me that I'm not damn movie star around them. They gave me a list of movies to watch and things to read and turned me on to what would become the central conceptual framework for how I chose and made movies for the rest of my career. Joseph Campbell's theory on the monomyth, the hero's journey as laid out in The Hero with a Thousand Faces. Chapter 15, Inferno. Will Smith was named Hollywood's most bankable star in a survey of movie industry professionals. The stars were ranked on ability to attract financing for a project, box office success, appeal to different audience demographics, and other factors. Smith was the only person to receive a perfect score of 10. I always enjoyed recounting the stories of my children's birth, partly to depict the harrowing journeys to parenthood, but mainly to embarrass my kids in front of their friends. I've spoken over the years to many artists, musicians, innovators, athletes, thinkers, poets, entrepreneurs, big dreamers from all walks of life, and there is a secret conversation that always seems to arise. How can we fully pr- pursue and realize our visions while at the same time cultivating love, a thriving family, and fulfilling relationships. And here's the harsh reality for everyone who loves a dreamer. Everything comes second to the dream. Everything comes second to the dream. Chapter 16, Purpose. Do not get comfortable with your back on that canvas, he said. You fight how you train. His position was, dreams are built on discipline, Discipline is built on habits. Habits are built on training, and training 
takes place in every single second and every situation of your life. How you wash the dishes, how you drive a car, how you present a report at school or at work. You either do your best all the time or you don't. If that behavior has not been trained and practiced, then the switch will not be there when you need it. The one year of training and the five months of filming of Ali was the most grueling mental, physical, and emotional test of my entire career, but also the most transformative. I had experienced the magnetism of fame. I knew well the allure of celebrity, the attraction of money, but this was my first dose of the power of purpose and the radiance of service. Purpose and desire can seem similar, but they are very different, sometimes even opposing forces. Desire is personal, narrow, and pointed, and tends towards self, preservation, self, gratification, and short-term gains and pleasures. Purpose is wide, broader, a longer-term vision encompassing the benefit of others, something outside of yourself you're willing to fight for. There have been many times in my life where I was acting from a place of desire, but I'd fully convinced myself that it was purpose. Chapter 17, Perfection. I am a dreamer and a builder. I picture grand visions, and then I build the systems to make them real in the world. That is my love language. I want to help people I love build extraordinary lives for themselves. But it demands that they will be willing to grind and sacrifice, and most importantly, they have to trust me. And if they don't, it registers as a complete rejection of my love. Witnessing my parents struggled branded me with an impression that financial stability was an imperative for love and the family to have any chance whatsoever to thrive. The problem was, odd, conflated being successful with being loved and being happy. These are three separate things, and since I'd conflated them, I ended up suffering from an even more insidious version of the subtle sickness which I can best describe as more, 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 more. So let me get this straight. You want us to believe that my character grew up bagging ice in West Philly, wins the first Grammy ever given to a rapper, becomes a TV star, then the biggest movie star in the world, breaking box office records every time he releases a damn movie, marries a beautiful actress, artist, performer, and poet, has three spectacular children, and the greatest hockey player in history of the sport, Wayne Gretzky, just patted him on the back because his son just caught a touchdown pass from the son of the greatest quarterback in history of the sport, Joe Montana. Chapter 18, Mutiny. So no, I did not push my kids into show business because I was an insane, overbearing father. It was only after they decided to be in show business that I became an insane overbearing father. When people are too worried about how they feel, they'll never feel how they want to feel. Back then, I made the troubling conclusion that questioning with empathy was an oxymoron, and you could either worry about how people feel, or you could win, but you had to pick one. Chapter 19, Retreat. It all slowly drifted into focus. Am I an addict? I don't do drugs. I don't really drink. I'm not hooked on sex like some ghetto hyena, but I do not know how to stop, or be still, or be quiet, or alone. I'm addicted to the approval of others, and to secure their approval, I became addicted to winning. Chapter 20, Surrender. But you, if you could be master of the universe, and you could snap your fingers, and have any life you wanted, what would it look like? That was a really heavy question, but neither of these identities is you, 
The question is, can you find safety in yourself and not from some external source of approval? Can you become a freestanding man? Well, you know, mathematically speaking, 99% is about as far as from zero as you can get. Surrender transformed from a weakness word to an infinite power concept. I had a bias toward action, thrusting, pushing, striving, struggling, doing. And I began to realize that their opposite were equally as powerful. Inaction, receptiveness, acceptance, non-resistance, being. Stopping was equally as powerful as going. Resting was equally as powerful as training. Silence was equally as powerful as talking. Letting go was equally as powerful as grasping. Minimizing my talking became my practice for maximizing my awareness. And I'd always seen the world as my battlefield. I now understood that the true combat zone was my mind. Chapter 21, Love. Hey dad, I said nervously. You did good. What do you mean, he asked, with your life? I don't think he was expecting to hear that. He took a pull of his Tyridon 100, turned his eyes back to the TV. He didn't seem like he was ready to go there just yet, but I was. I'm saying, you did great with your life, and when you're ready to go, I want to know that it's okay. You raised me well, and I got it from here. I'm going to take care of everybody you love. Daddy-o, what's going on? He put his cigarettes down, pensively gazed out at the big Franklin Bridge, aching over the Sucklin River. Man, Daddy-o said, you tell motherfuckers you're going to be dead in six weeks and nine weeks later you're still hanging around. This shit is embarrassing. This was probably the second biggest laugh Daddy-o and I ever shared. We simply look at each other. 20 minutes of silence. Finally, I hear my sister Alan in the background whisper to Daddy-o, Dad, you're just looking. You don't have anything you want to say to Will. Daddy-o searches for one last piece of wisdom, one final brick, but he's empty. He slowly shakes his head, a final surrender. Shit, anything I ain't told this motherfucker already, he sure ain't gonna get it from me tonight. We shared a final laugh, we said goodbye, and 45 minutes later, Daddy-o was gone. There's no relationships, careers, or houses with a name that can fill the hole. There is nothing you can either receive from the material world that will create an inner peace or fulfillment. The truth is, the smile is generated through output. It's not something you get, it's something you cultivate through giving. In the end, it would not matter one single bit how well they loved you. You will only gain the smile based on how well you love them. Last, the jump. I've realized for some reason, God placed the most beautiful things in life on the other side of our worst terrors. If we are not willing to stand in the face of the things that most deeply unnerve us and then step across the invisible line into the land of the dread, then we won't get to experience the best that life has to offer. So I've been making a conscious effort to attack all the things that I'm scared of, and this is scary. When Yes Theory challenged me to Halle Bungie, my heart jumped, and I've learned to recognize that feeling as a signal that the great gift has presented itself. As soon as my heart jumps, I'm in. I've got to do it. But I also can't be outdone. So when Yes Theory said, Halle Bungie, I added, over the Grand Canyon, and on my 50th birthday. As I took in the dueling landscape of friends, family, and the Grand Canyon, and saw the faces of the next generation, Harry's kids, Ali's kids, Pam's, JL's, Charlie's, Omar's, Caleb's, Scotty, and TJ's. 
I realized I'm standing in the middle of my dream. This is what I've always wanted. Everyone I love is here, together, as a family. And I had brought them to the Grand Canyon to witness a senseless and horrific death of their Uncle Will. The Wall It didn't matter if it was raining, if it was hot as hell, if I was mad, if I was sad, if I was sick, if I had the test the next day. There were no excuses. Some of the most impactful lessons I've ever received I've had to learn in spite of myself. The days dragged on, and so much as I hated to admit it, I started to see what he was talking about. When I focused on the wall, the job felt impossible, never ending, but when I focused on one brick, everything got easy. I knew I could lay one damn brick well. And that's a wrap on this autobiography named Will by Will Smith. If you like this summary and want a copy of the PDF, click the link below and I'll send this straight to you. We are Best Book Bits. We are coming up to 1,000 book summaries uploaded in video, written, and audio format. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Check us out on Spotify, Google Podcast, and Apple Podcast. Check the Best Book Bits website out, bestbookbits.com, where you'll receive over 1,000 free written book summaries. Check out our premium products and services out in the links and show notes below to help sponsor the channel to keep it going. Thanks for watching and listening. Hope you got something from this. Go out there and lay one goddamn brick every day to your life, your life resume. Will Smith, everybody, over and out.